0: Hello. How is everyone? (laughs) 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 I'm reading an email. (laughs) Sorry.
1: We're good. No one's reading any emails, yep. no one's browsing yep. Twitter, no one's on Instagram, chat, <laughs> eating Tide Pods, whatever. Um, okay, good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name's Callum Watt uh, and I am not here yet again with uh, Callum Roper. Where are you, Callum?
2: Uh, I'm back in Lincoln now. I'm back just off Central Bank, so back in familiar territory. Ah,
1: that's nice to hear. And also, we are not here with Bradley Orsop.
0: Hello. Yes, I'm still uh, in lockdown in Lincoln.
1: And this week we're joined by a special guest uh, who is right beside me, uh, who lives in my household, by the way, just uh, just to Mr Johnson, don't worry. Uh, I'm here with Natasha Chapman. Hello. Right. And uh, this week uh, we're going to cover... Uh, Probably the biggest story of the week, uh, which is, unfortunately, coronavirus yet again. Um, The winds are howling outside, the temperature has dropped. It's no longer quite as sunny as it was last week. Hopefully that is disincentive to uh, go outside and stay in your homes. Uh, Those who were going to the uh, pub a couple of weeks ago... Uh, we'll just have to make do with using Zoom and uh, picking up a crate of beer if you can find one. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we've had uh, a number of big cap- big-time capitalists um, humbled, perhaps should we say, uh, by proceedings. Uh, one big one would be uh, Tim Martin, the uh, head of Weatherspoons. Uh, The chairman, I think, of Weatherspoons has got a 37% share or something like that, um, who attempted to keep his pubs open for as long as he could. And then when his pubs were forced to close, despicably uh, decided that uh, he wasn't going to pay his workers a dime until uh, the government uh, paid his workers for him. Um, Natasha used to work for uh, for, uh, good old Tim, what did you think of the, uh, his actions this week? Uh,
3: completely unsurprising. He absolutely, you know, he's not the biggest proponent of workers' rights. Uh, working working in a spoons was actually the worst job I've ever done, and I have worked in other bars, uh, but that was genuinely the worst job I ever did, and... Um having worked in other service based jobs uh normally a lot of the stress comes from dealing with customers, but working in that Weatherpoonss, the stress came from uh the sort of rules that were put on us and also the management style and the managers had to deal with um It was really, really awful
1: hmm. and um this is uh he wasn't the only one as well uh obviously Mike Ashley, another noted poor employer, uh, was trying to keep Sports Direct open, uh, called it an emergency service, producing trainers for people to go out for their one-hour walk, as Michael Gove has mandated. they
3: um, inflated the prices of a lot of their at-home equipment, of course.
1: Yes, there's been lots of price gouging going on as well. General bad behaviour uh, all round. Um, but there has been lots of confusion, hasn't there, uh, about the actual extents to which a service is considered essential. Um, the uh, the Prime Minister announced on uh, Sunday evening that we were going on lockdown. Um, that was uh, shortly after we recorded on Sunday. Uh, he almost seemed to choke on his words, didn't he? He's uh, It felt surreal watching this man who 20 years ago First appears on "Have I Got News for You." Similarly, seated behind the desk, making jokes from an auto queue, Suddenly, with a new auto queue telling us that we've now got to stay in our homes. How did you guys feel when uh, when you were watching that? Were you watching it live?
2: Uh, yes, I was. Um, I know it was, it was quite a worrying time, really, because I was down in London at the weekend. For all those that were listening last week. Um, and it was a ghost town. When I got to King's Cross on Monday morning to get back up to Lincoln, it was it was scary. It really was. There was just nobody around. And it and it didn't help that you had um, some bloke preaching about the end of the world as well with his microphone outside the station. So it was very, very scary, really. It was a strange situation to be in.
1: I mean, you might think it, you might be forgiven for thinking it's the end of days and. In uh, January, we had endemic fires across Australia. Yeah. Uh, then in February, we were struck with enormous flooding. Uh, and then obviously this month, we've finally been hit with pestilence. Um, I'm told that uh, that uh, yesterday there was uh, a smattering of snow in uh, London. We have in my lifetime had uh, snow in April um so perhaps that's the next big crisis perhaps we can expect a big freeze that's the next stage in the in the apocalypse so to be fair um that guy with the microphone as much as a, uh, he's obviously a crank um you might be forgiven for thinking that it was uh, the end of days but maybe it's just the end of some days and the beginning of others um the uh blog uh, that we i've been planning for uh, weeks i'm just going to plug that now uh bradley if that's okay uh is finally going up this week i believe when are we expecting that
0: uh tuesday or wednesday this week we're looking at launching it and um, we we've, we've got a few articles that have come in um, on a range of topics and um, so yeah we're to launch that part of um, the site yeah
1: okay and on that we're going to be talking about uh Not the end times as such, but an analysis of uh, where we are. Um, I know I've written an article for it. Yeah, okay. Uh, I've written an article for it uh, talking about uh, the decline of the civil service. Uh, I know we've got articles there talking about uh, climate change as well. Uh, What else have we got uh, on there, Bradley?
0: uh yeah so we we do have some good good stuff on climate change and you know particularly i think what will be interesting for us is is the local aspect to, to climate change and um, obviously there's there's a lot of stuff that has been written on coronavirus and, and climate change uh in a in a national and an international sense um what what we're hoping to do is get stuff that that's on the, the local context so what what can lincolnshire do um about these issues um we've also got stuff um on youth politics um, from uh, Mr. Callum Roper. Uh and I, I'm going to be working on some stuff um around inequality um, and we're hoping to to try and get some stuff um on student politics um at the university as well.
1: That's good, and this will form the sort of bulwark uh, or the vanguard, I suppose, of uh, how we construct a new world when uh, all of this is over. Because it's this. The, the government couldn't control this pandemic happening. Um, obviously, at the very start, it started in Wuhan in China. Uh, I think we spoke in a previous broadcast how, how the initial whistleblower for the coronavirus was silenced. But the uh, it's quite possible that even if he hadn't been, um, given that the symptoms can incubate for quite some time um, that this virus could have got out or he it could have gone around the world it's not our government's fault that this has happened but it is absolutely their responsibility to deal with it uh, in a in the best way that they can some countries have done that very well uh, in South Korea, they introduced social distancing and a lockdown very, very early. Uh, they had uh, an adequate number of testing equipment and ventilators. Meanwhile, in the Western world, uh, today we now have a obscure um, company called uh, MedFet UK, uh, which, uh, as I understand it, uh, makes uh, medical scrubs for people uh, in the kink community um they have been donating all of their stock to the nhs um what does it say about our uh, national institution of the uh, um, of the nhs our national health service which was yeah. supposed to have uh, the moral high ground of the world What does it say that they're now turning turning around to small charities and sex and, shops and sex shops basically uh to get their equipment
2: I think it demonstrates nothing but a complete disregard in the last 10 years for our NHS from the government. And as we all know, it's been a systematic, effectively taking apart the NHS in terms of the services it offers. They haven't stockpiled things like PPE. They knew that eventually a big virus like this would come. We had warnings with SARS and we've had warnings with the the Ebola outbreak. Um, But still, we we, we don't listen and, and continue ignore it and continue to underfund the NHS and now we're at this point where we're playing catch-up and I think it's a disgrace really and, and you've got to give credit to all the staff in the NHS that are working their socks off in what is a very difficult situation where they're underfunded they're under-equipped but they still go to work and they still do a job
1: hmm. and I certainly um, empathise with that obviously I, I work for Unison and I work for our health branch in Lincolnshire, Um, I've spent so much of the last week, or the last couple of weeks, to be fair, on the phone to very worried health workers, um, often in the private sector, who are being told, or they're saying, I'm asthmatic, or my... Husband is has or wife is asthmatic sure. or they're elderly uh, they're vulnerable um can i self-isolate or do i still have to go in and i have to say to them at the moment that unless their uh, employer tells them to um self-isolate they still have to go to work even though they're vulnerable unless they or someone in their household is symptomatic In which case they must self isolate Um, and then a lot of those people if they work for um if they work for one of the big hospitals if they work directly for the nhs they get um full sick pay so they get full pay as if they were going into work Uh, but in a lot of companies in the private sector and we're talking here about care homes and gps mainly uh, people who are looking uh, after vulnerable people themselves uh, professionally. Um, they, if they self-isolate, a lot of them don't have anything stipulated in their contracts. So yeah. They have to go down to SSP, statutory sick pay, um, which at the moment is still only £94 a week, uh, which is not adequate. Um, the, the health secretary is actually, you know, he admitted on live national television that he couldn't live on that. Um, and honestly, it's... Um, it's quite it's quite stressful to uh to listen to those calls and some people are put at ease so you know you, you tell them their rights and they know that they're they're not going to lose their jobs if they self isolate um this is the value of being in a union of course um but for a lot of workers who are not in unions, they're often on their own um and I think that's been the That's been the hardest thing for me during this, uh, during this outbreak is, is listening to that. And I think when this is over, uh, there's going to be hell to pay. There is going to be hell to pay. We have to restore the NHS properly. We need to, you know, we need to have enough staff that, you know, if you, if people have to self-isolate in a future ap- a- epidemic, it doesn't matter as much. Um, they have to have proper personal protective equipment. PPE is, what the, uh, is, the, is, the, is what's been talked about. We have to have adequate amounts of that to protect people. Um, and the only way you will get that is with a proper nationalised health service um, with the ability to produce... That sort of thing themselves. The government has to; it can't just take donations from uh, companies like Dyson, benevolently producing um, ventilators. It can't be paying rent, sort of three hundred pounds per bed to private hospitals. These things should be requisitioned, put in public hands, because at the end of the day, it's the health and well-being of the population which is the primary responsibility of the state. And under the current neoliberal structures, which put uh, market solutions first, it ain't happening and it has to change. And I think a lot of people who sadly will have lost friends, family during this crisis, they will want change to happen. And I think that's the strongest argument for a socialist government after this crisis is finished.
2: Absolutely,
1: yeah. So I went off on a uh, a little bit of a uh,
2: a rant there. That's uh, that's. No, I think yeah, it's, it's important to get that insight from somebody you're you're working for a union, and and a lot of people at this moment in time are worried about their their security in work, whether it be getting sick pay to a proper amount, whether it be that they get laid off or not. And, you know, we need to be holding companies and we need to be holding government's feet to the fire in regards to this. And just make sure that these rights that they may have secured during this crisis, that we hold on to them and we build upon them because still employment laws heavily favour the companies over the employee, which does need to change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, (laughs) this... uh i i hope that when this is over we're going to be able to organize people um we'll talk about uh the labor leadership, le- leadership uh election as we will my my cat has just come up to boot me in the face which is nice um one pleasant thing about working from home is you uh you do get to spend more time with uh your family um and also evidently with your pets um I think when, when and one sort of nice thing that's come out of this uh, crisis is actually that maybe it will give people an opportunity to reconnect with uh, with their loved ones. Um, obviously, a lot of uh, students have gone home to, to live with their families as per the instructions of their universities.
0: Um, you obviously haven't, Callum. That um, uh, that was. That was an interesting email to receive you know we, we we've we've had several days of which the official government advice has been to to basically s- stay the fuck home um and then the university w- released what I thought was quite a shocking statement actually
3: see that's really- um
0: they emailed all students and and told them um if you can pack pack your things up and go home now um which I thought was an incredible thing to have said when official government advice but- was to to stay in your homes as much as possible. And what they essentially done there was say to several thousand students leave and travel across the country and spread potentially spread the virus, they potentially created several thousand new vectors it It, it was an incredible statement which they wrote back on the next day and um, but yeah,
3: that seems extremely irresponsible yeah. um I'm obviously at Nottingham Trent University, and obviously I've been reading the advice that the university has been emailing right. to its students. Now, it didn't apply to me because I don't live on campus, but um, all they've done uh, is ask people to inform them whether they who are living on campus, whether they are still on campus for people who are living away from home, who are living near the university, to just let them know if that's the case because they just kind of want to know where their students are and if they need yeah. extra support. Um, now, as it happened on my course, a lot of the students doing my master's course are actually international students. Uh, because we tend to keep an eye on uh, these sorts of things, as uh, the as the early stages of the pandemic were kind of emerging, a lot of them knew that lockdown was likely, so uh, they returned to their home countries if they were planning to be with the family during this period, and sort of kind of went into uh, started social distancing long before that was official government advice. So it's, um, but yeah, the. It's extraordinary that the University of Lincoln actually said that. That's that's ridiculous. I
0: think I think it it shows a couple of things. I think one it shows this sort of this half lockdown we're in. You know, in in the, the it's been so sort of
3: piecemeal put
0: together by the government, and the, and they've been so poor at, at actually implementing a proper lockdown. So I think perhaps part of it stems from that. Um, but I think it it also just sort of scratches the surface of the issues for higher education with the lockdown. Um Callum Roper, you might better have more on this, but I know at the moment um you two know, big issues for students is is the issue of rent collection sorry. for the final term um now the University of Lincoln has waived rent i believe for 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 the final term for accommodation it it provides um which which make me partly wonder um about. Well, it it made me partly wonder that, that they'd announced that, and then a few days later, there's an email telling students to go home. I didn't know if the two were connected, um, but it might it might reduce the the electricity costs and things they have to pay if they're suddenly given that accommodation rent free to students. Um, but but the other issue is that of uh of marks and grades. Um, so I know there's a petition going around um University of Lincoln at the moment calling upon the vice chancellor to do what um. A few other universities have already said they're doing. I think it was Edinburgh and, and Exeter and, and somewhere else, um, which essentially is is guarantee. So the average of the grades that people have got up until this point um, sort of guarantee that as a minimum grade going forward for students. So basically, if they're handing assignments that fall below that level, um, that that they won't receive that won't impact their, their overall grade. That the lowest grade they'll get is the average of the of their grades so far. Um, which, which personally, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if that is the best approach. I've, I've not made my mind up on that yet. But I think it, it, it is a massive headache for universities and for students to have to to deal with at this point. Is how how do you continue with assignments and and grades and marking, um, in the middle of such an unprecedented situation? I, I'm not sure there are easy answers to that actually.
2: Uh yeah, it's we've. I mean, I've been sort of um following this, and a lot of people have been mailing into the course reps and to the course leaders and the issue is is that the online learning that they've basically shifted to for a lot of people is just pre-recorded Panopto lectures so what they're faced with is just a pre-recording no seminar spaces no opportunity to really question academics and have a, a debate or a discussion beyond emailing them and the issue that they're faced with there is that I mean, I'm in second year, but people in in all levels of the university, they're going to find that their education in this sort of period is not going to be as whole as the others. So we have got to almost plug that gap somehow to make sure that they still get a degree that they deserve and that they don't lose out because of this, but still they're to some degree doing some sort of learning in this time.
3: Yeah, um, absolutely.
2: Oh, well, put her hand up.
3: In terms of uh, what you're saying about mocks, so uh, an issue, again, I could say that having on the course I'm doing, um, one of our modules is learning how to use uh, geographic information system software. And the programme that we're using is quite a... It, it, it's uh, quite a hefty bit of software. And um, a lot of the... People in the class can't get it to run on their laptops or their home computers, which was fine when we could go in and use the university computers to do it. Uh, but now we've got a big question mark because the university themselves are saying, Okay, well, your assignments still need to be done, but we're a lot you know, the majority of the class are saying, Well, we can't complete the work, we can't use the software. Um, so people are sort of wondering what on earth to do with that.
1: So that's something you've come across as a as a course rep? Uh, Callum, how do you feel about? Um, there's a petition going round at the moment uh, in relation to. I think it was. Let me just uh, let me just bring it up. Uh, what was it calling for? Um, a safety net rule. That was it. Um, have you seen that? For for all the signs?
2: You support that. presumably yeah, the safety net, yeah. Yeah, I have seen it and signed it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I support it. I I think it's it's not it's not perfect, but given the circumstances, I think students will be able to work better and, and with the current assignments they've got left to do, I think they'll be able to do a lot better with the burden off their shoulders and the pressure that they won't be able to finish all their assignments or they can't access everything that they need to um, for example, some copies of books are only available in the library in physical form so if you need a book they said they have sent around an email to people saying if it's not available online we won't punish you for it but still if you've got a big essay or for example for your dissertation there's a big input from a certain book and you can't get it online then you know that's making a big change to your work and then you've got to change the angle that you're coming from they've said it is not going to impact you, but I think that it might still impact students nonetheless.
1: So what does but the safety net do? It,
2: basically, it doesn't or It doesn't it award do? grades willy-nilly. I, I think, as Bradley explained, I think it, it takes an average from beforehand, before, before lockdown and before universities are being closed, and takes those other grades and applies that average as a safety net. So if, say, you finish your assessment and you don't, get the grades that you you thought you would get or wanted to get or below this average then it will be able to just keep, keep it at this this average which will be lo- it'll probably be lower than what you'd want to achieve but it'll be better than completely failing the next few modules and then that's it you, you get a, a i don't know a third class degree or something
1: Basically, it ensures that students won't uh, yeah. be disadvantaged in their future careers just because they happen <laughs> to have been studying at the time of the plague. Um, if you <laughs> if you want to, to sign that petition, um, it's called, it's on change.org. Uh, University of Lincoln, introduce a safety net rule for all assignments post-March 2020. It currently has... It's actually gone up in the time I've been looking at it uh presently it has one thousand and fifty eight signatures um and it's rising time so do uh, do uh, give that a look uh, and give it your support uh, I don't know if there's an equivalent one for uh bishop Cross test um they may have been more sensible and, and introduced it already um I'm not sure um but yes, we are going to see... Oh, and that is my phone, as per tradition. Um, uh, so we are going to see... Uh, I think we are going to see uh, big changes in the way that we organise ourselves. Um, this is probably the biggest... This is the biggest thing that's happened in my lifetime. Um, it's probably the biggest thing that's happened even in a lot of uh, boomers' lifetimes. But of course, we've got a bigger crisis as well um which is still the climate crisis which is still going on today the government has actually quietly released a plan to uh introduce modal shift into the economy which is a big surprise because they always thought
0: it's Your favorite, Alan. sorry what was that it's your it's your favorite catchphrase modal, modal
1: shift. shift yes modal shift uh the idea of getting people out of their cars and into buses, trains, on on their bicycles and uh, just walking, if you can. Um, it At a local level, it's seen some resistance from Lincolnshire County Council. Um, I know there are uh, Tory county councillors who uh, get apoplectic with rage whenever you suggest that uh, we should tell people not to drive their motor motorcars. Um, but it seems that this Conservative uh, national government... Uh, is actually going in the other direction they 've actually realized there's something uh, to do have you seen this uh, uh, story today uh, Bradley it only came out yesterday evening
0: I think yeah I, I was reading it um yeah and it 's been as much as is possible at the moment I think yeah it's been quite quite widely held by by activists um, that you know it, it, it's probably probably the most ambitious climate policy we 've seen ever from from Tories um, of course the obvious questions are: What resources and support will it get to to actually, you know, bear, bear fruit? Um, I I suppose where we're at at the moment that it we're almost in a testing ground for climate crisis in some ways, and that uh, what will happen as a result of climate challenge uh, will will be far worse than what we're having to go through now. Um, so I say the the question is if if we can't manage efficiently now with with what's going on. How how will we cope with, with what's coming our way later on in the century with, with climate change? Um, but but it's also making clear that a lot of the solutions are are quite easily be easily workable. You know we can have large investments from the government at a time of crisis to to deal with the issue. We, we we're seeing that now across the world. Um people can have more flexible um, and work at home sort of sort of life, lifestyles as well. And um, so, you know, a, a lot of the things that were previously unthinkable are now becoming necessities under this crisis. Um, I think another good example was the government sort of quite quite quickly saying, oh, well, we need to have all homeless people off the streets this weekend. And, um, you know, and everyone sort of sat up and was like, well, hang on a minute, you you could just easily have done it at any time. Um, so I think there's all these sorts of things. Um... Oh.
2: Okay,
1: you cut out a oh. bit, but...
3: um Bradley?
1: Have, have we still it's, got. Bra-
3: oh. Faded, do you think his internet's gone? It,
2: um, yeah, it sounds like his, his Wi Fi's gone down.
1: Okay, um, well, let's. Let, well, Natasha's put her hand up, so let's. Um, yeah. Her just, and then we'll hopefully Bradley will come back in a minute.
3: So I confess I haven't actually had a look at these uh, proposed modal shift, So I don't know how much um, detail that they've gone into in terms of what resources they're going to provide for it Um, but Callum's point about the Lincolnshire County Council is quite interesting to me um, because obviously they cover an area which is largely rural it's maybe hard for people living in Lincoln Mm. to picture that Uh, but obviously that will mean that the County Council if they want people to not drive will have to properly invest in public services so we need the bus services to be greatly improved um, it's quite often the case, uh, I've, I mean, I found this in the general election because I was helping out a parliamentary candidate for Sleaford and North Highcombe, and if we had to travel anywhere, you'd be waiting for a bus, and you'd only be sort of 50% sure whether it was even going to turn up, and then on top of that, it's expensive, uh, so we were travelling by bus mm. a point of principle, but in a lot of cases, the bus fare for both of us Actually cost about what it would have done to get a taxi, and obviously that would have got us there more reliably, so it does make it kind of difficult for people, even if they want to get out of their cars. Uh, the other thing that I would kind of note is that if they are making these changes to try and get people out of their cars, it would be interesting to see if they are going to drop some of the things that they announced in the budget. So they announced this 4,000 miles of new road that they'd be building, and that will have a massive impact. Um, you know, obviously depending where they place these roads, but that's obviously that's going to go somewhere, and that's going to impact on wild habitats. And obviously that is kind of encouraging more cars. And uh, they also are tending to continue to freeze fuel tax, which again will increase road emissions. So uh, it's intent. It'll be interesting to see what their intentions are.
1: Yeah. Bradley's gone, off, gone off the complete. feed yeah. completely.
3: Oh, bye, Bradley.
1: Um, which is uh, a little bit uh, concerning. Um,
2: He's still but on the pod.
1: Yeah. <laughs> do, we to, do we have to stop it and, or can he come in? Come
2: back uh, in. He should be able to just follow the link. What? What? He's coming back.
1: He's coming back. Can we hear you, can you hear us, Bradley? Bradley, what happened? Yeah.
0: Did you Did you hear any of my brilliant speech?
2: We heard like the end.
1: What did you?
3: hear
0: basically, the the point I was trying to make was that um, the the issues coming our way with the climate crisis will be far worse than what we we'll have to deal with at the moment. As bad as this situation is. Um, so you know, it, if we if we can't deal with this, if we haven't got the structures in place to deal with this, then then we've got no hope for the for the climate crisis. But also, the situation at the moment is exposing a lot of the problems in society, but also that we can do things quite easily differently. So you know, working from home is, I think, a really good example. Um, it'd be far better for the environment if people were able to have more flexible working conditions. They're able to to work at home more when they want to, um, and and we've seen that that's quite possible actually for quite a lot of people. Um, in quite a lot of different roles. Not for everyone, um, but for a lot of people it is. Um, things like mass government investment um, you know, is quite perfectly possible in times of crisis. Um, the problem is we don't see the climate crisis as something that needs that investment. Um, I think a really good example was when last week um, the government declared that all, that all homeless people should be housed by the, by the weekend. To, to local councils, you know, is just just as simple as that, and you know, everyone was quite rightly like, well, well why weren't we doing that anyway? What, why is that something that we're only doing now? And um, I think that's true of a lot of actions that have been taken. Um, they they could have been taken before, they should have been taken before, and it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for these sorts of things to happen.
1: Okay, the 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 uh, homelessness thing is uh, is interesting because the government has. Ended. It hasn't ended homelessness as such, um, but it has or is trying to end rough sleeping, um, which is actually, we've now been told, quite easy to do. Um, All you need to do is find someone who is on the streets and you give them a hotel room. Um, And actually, to be fair, this isn't uh, completely off the wall because there are actually quite a lot of uh, families in particular, who are um routinely uh put into what's called emergency accommodation, which is usually bed and breakfasts and hotels um but not all rough sleepers get that same treatment um now I'm not saying that the permanent solution to that is to always be requisitioning hotels. What we actually need is massive investment in things like hostels. A massive investment in, I would say, creating perhaps apartments for people who just giving people a roof over their head, some sort of baseline accommodation, um, so that they're not on the streets. They have somewhere to collect themselves. So they have somewhere where they can be secure. And I think this has been done elsewhere. Um, I believe is it Finland? I think where um, where they've uh, where they uh, just give people. Uh, an apartment Um, and it's it's the starting point there you can you can sit there and you can you can browse for jobs you can look into education you can start to rebuild your life and that should be it shouldn't just be i think um a welfare payment that you get i think part of your welfare package if you like as a citizen part of the safety net Needs to be having a roof over your head, as well as simply the ability to buy food. Would you agree with that, Carl?
2: I, I would agree. It goes beyond universal basic income and into universal basic services, and a safe roof over your head is one of them. Mm. You know, having having somewhere to sleep the night that's secure, somewhere that you can get your post and get a paycheck. Because you've got to remember a number of things you can't do. Without having an address, so you know this is the first step to getting people back on the on the right track, as it were.
1: Hmm. And we have to—I think—we have to make sure that that is political common sense. I mean, it's so many. I mean, I've been involved with the Labour Party for ten years, in so many meetings. Um, I've seen crestfallen councillors come give to give their reports. Uh, and say, you know, the funding's been cut for uh, homelessness. There are fewer and fewer beds, uh, mainly coming in in the case of Lincoln, uh, from the county council, which uh, usually cuts any funding to services it doesn't have to statutorily, legally provide. Um, If we can turn that around and it becomes the norm, that the state provides housing for everyone, regardless of their circumstances, that would be the biggest change in local politics um, and national politics that I I will have ever seen. And I think it will give people a lot of, who have struggled through the era of austerity an awful loss of heart and the ability to argue for other things. Um, it will be interesting to see when the lockdown ends um, how the government... Uh, responds? Do you think they're going to just release all of these former rust sleepers onto the streets or uh, do you think that would be too politically risky?
2: I I fear they will um, because once the crisis has gone by I reckon without the, the pressure from the public, namely ourselves leading it, then I fear that they will go back to their old ways. They will go back to cutting and making sure that they put on the bare minimum of services. And if homelessness exists, they'll take it as just a fact of that. that's how it is. And I think that we've proven this whole crisis, if we can take something good out of it, is that it is possible to deal with the big issues in society if we come together and we put a bit of money behind it and we put our money where our mouth is and actually fund the services that keep people off the streets, fund the NHS, fund education, fund housing. You know, all these things are, are fixable, but we're shying away from it in, in the name of a, a basically a political ideology.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is and it is entirely a selfish uh, ideology yes. as well. Um, it will require political will mm-hmm. to uh, change, change the way we do things. Um, we'll talk about the... Um, Labour leadership uh, uh, in a moment. Um, since we have a Lib Dem here, um, I thought we might concentrate a little bit on the on the smaller parties, as uh, as Michael Foot would have said. Um, what's been happening? I think I understand that there uh, the Liberal Democrat leadership has been suspended at the moment. Do you want to talk about that, Natasha?
3: Uh yeah, sure. So. The party's federal board, which makes these decisions, it's a elected board which is supposed to sort of deal with the kind of administrative running of the party. Uh, they decided this week at a meeting to suspend the leadership election, which in itself is possibly okay, considering... Obviously, what's going on, which needs to take precedence. And also, because of the lockdown, it's a lot more difficult for potential candidates to go and meet members and to campaign effectively. Uh, so, I'm not opposed to them extending it in principle. Uh, the question of whether it needed to be suspended for a year is proving to be a little bit more contentious um, because it does then mean that we have uh, an acting leader who was not elected by anyone, uh, who in fact, when he stood in a leadership election, actually was defeated quite resoundingly by members. Was that uh, Davey also, yeah. Ed Davey or something? That's Ed Davey, yeah. He lost quite dramatically. And uh, yet he's sort of being allowed to remain in position for this extended period of time. I think part of the reason for that, the reasoning that was taken, was that it's quite likely that even if the lockdown ends, there's a high probability that we're going to kind of get corona round two when winter hits this year. So that makes sorting out a kind of a timetable potentially difficult. Uh, Though I don't think that that's reason not to do it necessarily. I think, you know, candidates could make use of uh, online campaigning tools to meet people. I mean, for... For instance, yesterday, um, one Lib Dem group I'm part of, which is not an official group or anything like that, um, but it's just for people to stay connected. Uh, well, it used to be to just be connected in general if they needed help with various things, but now it's become a more of a social space. During the during the pandemic, um, they set up a Zoom call yesterday, which was sort of a virtual pub type thing, and um, Layla Moran dropped dropped into that to have a chat with people. And it's not difficult for leadership candidates potentially to actually get in touch with people like that um, and speak to them. So um, I'm personally deeply uncomfortable with it being delayed for a year. And my understanding is that some members are looking to challenge it on a constitutional basis, but we'll sort of see what happens with that.
1: So having having heard that, do we feel like, Bradley, do you feel like the... Uh the Labour leadership could have been suspended uh, as well should that have been something that we did um, or have we made the right decision by announcing our new leader this weekend or next weekend rather?
0: Um, I, th- I think we were quite quite far through the process by the time society started shutting down I think so uh, I think it was probably the best decision really to, to carry on I think most of the discussion had happened, but by, by the time things started shutting down, um, and actually for Labour as a party, I think we need to get beyond our leadership election and, and beyond the shadow of, of the general election defeat. So I, th- I think uh, it's perhaps a slightly different situation for the Lib Dems, but I feel like it was the right the right thing for Labour to carry on the, the leadership election, um, so it could start to 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 focus its efforts on the future rather than being stuck where we are at the moment. I think.
1: Would you agree with that, Callum? As the uh as the leading um, light of the Rebecca Long-Bailey campaign uh, in Lincoln. I I understand there have been some discussions, given that the likelihood of Keir Starmer winning the uh, election, um, that uh, there might be some political benefit to delaying the contest.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know a a number of um, uh, people in the party actually launched a petition a few weeks ago to, to get it suspended. Um, I'm, I, for one, agree with Bradley is is the fact that we just got to get on with it now as a party. And I think the sooner we can get a leader into place and move on from December, the better, really, especially in the light of this crisis. I'm not sure whether handing over the reins of leadership during this is what we need to do. But I think at the end of the day, we do need to have a coherent leadership in place. Uh, and it gives us plenty of time to build, hopefully, 2021 with the both county council and local elections in the city happening in Lincoln.
1: Mm-hmm. I know that'll be of uh, interest to people like myself who are going to be candidates uh, and have, have had to wait. Are going to have to wait an extra year to actually uh, uh, get on with that campaign. Um, but uh, would I is it does it? so you're uh you're in favor with the leadership um election carrying on is there anything that sort of worries you about um what's going to happen when uh the leadership hands over do you think there should have been some sort of delay between uh, uh corbyn's leadership ending and a changeover period like they have for the presidential elections for example okay. Uh, where the uh, where the president is elected in uh, November, and then there's a two month transition
2: period. Not normally, I'd say no, but in the current circumstances, perhaps a, a changeover period would be would be helpful. I mean, maybe something where we can get wait until um, you know lockdown has been finished and then hand over. Because I mean, you've got to remember that Starmer will likely bring in a lot of his own staff, and he would want to get, probably change out a lot of people in central office. I know he's uh potentially going to be asking Jenny Thornby to go. That's something that's been floated today amongst a number of other rumours. So there's a lot of big changes at the top. Emily Thornberry? Um, no, Jenny Thornby. Emily Thornberry. Jenny Thornby. Jenny Formby. Oh, sorry, the uh, the General Secretary. General Secretary of the Party, yeah. Party. It's going to ask her to go, apparently. So there's going to be a lot of big changes at the top. Um, and I think, given the current circumstances... We don't want to be risking people coming into central office to be told they're sacked. Likewise with people getting told that they've got a new job and a new office, so you might as well start moving in now. So I think it's 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 not just a political point, but actually just a, a point of safety of party members, party staff and everybody associated with the party. So it
0: sounds a bit like he's measuring the curtains before he's been given the keys. Well, so. yeah, it does,
2: doesn't it? But I, I, I doubt that... Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Rebecca Long-Bailey probably has a, an idea of who he'll, she'll keep and who she'll get rid of.
1: It just somewhat contradicts the idea of us all sort of being together and unified and so on. You know, obviously, whoever is the leader is entitled to uh, make changes mm. uh, and so on, but if there's a, if there's a sudden cliff you know if they're all got uh you know if they're all got yeah. rid of and all of the personnel are changed and you know, i think that would be quite detrimental to the organization of or the party what i'm particularly worried about is the um community organizer department Um, you know i've i've said for years i know a lot of other people on the left have as well that the only w- way we will undermine the media's control over the narrative um You know, the political narrative in this country is if we are organising at a grassroots level more effectively, uh, getting involved in community groups, getting involved in churches and schools where possible. Um, And so that we are we have a movement of half a million people who are politically educated and able to have um, persuasive discussions um, in pubs, cafes, workplaces, and when they're sweeping the streets of other activists. Um, that's the only way that we'll be able to win people's trust um, and fight uh, the, the mainstream media. And if it's as, as seems as possible, there's a big uh, cull of people who are hired during the Corbyn period, we're going to lose all of those talented people and there's only 22 of them at the moment, but the idea is to grow it. Um, we're going to lose all of those people who are really dedicated to that way of organising politics, and we're just going to be cast adrift again in the, in the uh, sea of, of, uh, of biased media with which we can't control. Um, so I think that you know, whoever becomes leader, we need to vigorously defend uh, that as a, a really radical idea um, which could actually win us future elections. Um, as an outsider, Natasha, how do you sort of perceive what's going on um, in, in the Labour Party at the moment? The Liberal Democrats have sort of become a minor party now, once again, but obviously they could become relevant. Uh, if there's a. Uh, well, no, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but, you know. Um, the Liberal Democrats are a smaller It's all right, I'm not going to whack party. him with a
3: cushion, don't worry. <laughs> they're, they're,
1: they, are, they are a smaller party, but obviously they can become kingmakers I mean, um, in before... future elections, so they're still relevant from that point of view.
3: Um, before I answer that, I did actually kind of want to ask maybe sort of a slightly boring technical question, because I'm not 100% sure of how it works. The Labour Party staffers that you're talking about that are, maybe at risk of being got rid of depending on who becomes the next leader um what sort of contracts are they subject to or do you not know,
1: uh, I don't, I don't know. I, i've never been employed by the paper party i did try once um i i actually got through an assessment and two interviews uh but they never actually got back to me so i've never been I, i've never been on an employment contract i would hope that obviously, if they do decide to get rid of staff, they would go through the proper redundancy procedures, and uh, uh, they obviously get the, a proper payout. Um, that's that's the proper way of doing it, because um, otherwise, that we are the Labour Party, and um, we need to be adhering to proper Labour laws. That obviously, we as a party have helped draft in the past. Um, that you, is you a point, the though, of course. That, label,
0: well,
1: yeah, yeah uh, uh, obviously, there'll be a cost to that yeah. as well, which is, a, is, a, uh, is another implication. If they got get rid of a lot of staff all at once, they'll all have to be paid off. Otherwise, there'll be a scandal. Um, so that might be a disincentive for the NEC uh, National Executive Committee agreeing to a mass layoff of staff. But obviously, it's much easier to get rid of one staff member, such as the General Secretary, and then gradually remove staff over time. Um, and that might that might actually be, that's a good point, actually, that might be their tactic um, is to sort of gradually, quietly remove staff because it creates less of a scandal and it would be less expensive for the party.
3: Mm, that's quite interesting to think about. Sorry, I'll come back to the question you actually asked me now. I was just sort of curious about that, just from a sort of technical point mm. um so I've confessed with the lab- leadership election um I'm probably about two or three weeks behind on whatever is currently happening with it because I was following it uh but then I had a period of a uh, load of stuff happen in my personal life and I haven't been paying as much attention at all um but it's kind of it'll be interesting to see who becomes Leader obviously on the point that it's important to see who'll be heading the the main opposition in the country and what direction they'll go in. Um, I think in, on Calm's point about being potential kingmakers from the Liberal Democrat perspective, uh, it does actually. It'll be interesting to see who becomes leader of our party in that regard. So, the candidate of the candidates who have announced that they're interested in running or are likely to run. Um, I'm not going to make any secret of the fact that I'm very strongly backing Leila Moran, for leader. Um, now, she is very much viewed as on the left of the party. I've spoken to her about various issues that she wasn't prepared about beforehand. And I think her gut instincts are very good. They're, uh, you know, very actually, properly liberal, um, very pro-civil liberties, uh which will be important as well. I think it'll be very important in this uh, era of things like facial recognition and things that are perhaps not seen as deeply important issues to a lot of people, but actually in fact are because sort of the increased rollout of surveillance and things like that do erode on our personal freedoms. And actually civil liberties may well become a very hot topic um, as this pandemic rolls on because obviously we're in lockdown at the moment, but we're still very much in a situation where we're accepting policing by consent. Um, Obviously, if any measures get tougher, uh, that may not continue. So from that perspective, I think that a party that's got a strong focus on civil liberties actually still has quite a lot to say uh, in this country. Um, And it'll be, I'll say, it'll be interesting to see who becomes leader of the of our respective parties and how they might interact because something Layla's already sort of put some sounding out on about of is that it would actually probably be beneficial uh, in when it comes to elections and things if we were not battling with the Labour Party because it there's a lot of overlap in some of the values. Um, so depending on who becomes the leader and what kind of policy platforms they try to pursue, we don't necessarily need to fight. And if you look at every general election result for the past 100 years, usually when the Labour Party does win an election, the Liberal Democrats also do well because they're still seen on that progressive wing of politics. So when one of us does badly, the other does too. Hmm.
1: So that'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with those uh, elections. Um, have we got anything else to raise? Is there anything else that, uh, that you guys are particularly interested in uh, this week?
2: I think we've covered everything.
0: Okay. Yeah, just to look out for the, for the, the blog launch um, midweek.
1: Yep, well, that's uh, on Tuesday we're expecting it to be, aren't we? Yep, yep. So there'll be, there'll be a number of articles on there. Uh, some of them will be going around on social media as well. This uh, podcast will be accessible on there as well, um, for the time being. it's uh, We'll go around. Um, it's goodbye from me. And uh, Callum? Uh, goodbye from
2: me. Keep safe this week and maintain your social distance. Bradley?
0: yeah, uh, goodbye from me, um So Lincoln, and yeah, look out for each other where you can, where you can do that safely um and see you all next week. Yeah. Tasha
3: uh thanks very much for having me on. It's been interesting to have a chat, and uh yeah, like everybody else has said, please be safe, and uh, don't be afraid to try weird stuff because we're, we're in isolation, you might as well it might be fun. With stuff like what? Well, uh, a <laughs> video that someone I know posted on Twitter where she'd decided to teach her parents a dance routine to all the single ladies by Beyonce. And she pointed out that her father, um, you know, doesn't do that normally, but they did a whole routine. It was amazing. They're just in their back garden. They filmed themselves doing it. It looked really fun. So, yeah, try stuff. I mean, don't force yourself to try stuff, but maybe try stuff.
1: Okay. <laughs> and on that more positive note I think uh, we'll, we'll end it there So we will see you next week
3: I'm here Our